Philippians chapter 3. We have just moved out of chapter 2 into chapter 3 in our series here in this letter. Now, as we mature in life, one thing that should be taking place as we mature is our ability to understand the values of things in our life and respond accordingly. Um, what is most important, what is maybe least important, we, we enjoy watching some funniest home videos in our family, and I saw one, um, it was maybe in the fall, um, like one of those probably Halloween specials, but it was after Halloween, and the parents must have tried to stash and hide the big bowl of candy that the kids collected, and they'd stuck it in the oven, and then mom went to go turn on the oven to preheat it for something, and then it turned into this mass, like 10-pound blob of goo in the middle of their, and of course they're filming their little kids just like bawling, like, oh my God. I mean, I get it. If I was a kid, that's horrible loss. Hopefully at 45 years old, you are not doing that as well. Your maturity should bring an ability to not underreact, but also not overreact to situations, but to respond appropriately to the value of that situation, of that, that person, of that threat. Right? You, there should be maturity about that. You, you learn to understand. If, if your toddler was walking down the driveway and heading to the road and you saw a big FedEx truck zoom, zooming down, you wouldn't say, oh, Johnny, was Johnny, Johnny. Right? You, would be, you would be a very bad parent. You would rush to the situation. You would rescue that toddler. Um, I have had a joy visiting certain workplaces of, of men in the church, and I've enjoyed that. This was years ago, but one of those vocation guys who work in technology and went into his company that, that uh, builds robots that move very expensive electronic wafers uh, that make microchips um, from them. This is like a class one clean room. It's high, the highest rated room, no odors, no deodorant, no perfumes. Your clothing must be lint free. It's like perfectly clean air in this in this area. And these giant 12-inch wafers, once processed and all the chips are on them, could be an estimated worth of like 1.5 million. This was years ago, so I'm sure that's even more now. So the slightest bit of dust could damage that wafer, it contaminate it, make it useless, or if it breaks and gets contaminated, it could break the next one next to it. So you could be out millions of dollars for your lack of precision, protection, and understanding the extreme value of and worth of that in responding accordingly. So we must, we must be people who have an appropriate response and reaction to those values and the worth and the preciousness of the things around us. And in our text today, Paul's reaction and encouragement to the Philippians strikes, strikes a tone to help them in a couple ways. One, to feel the weighty warning of threats to the value of the gospel in their life, to not underreact to those threats, and also holds out his experience of knowing the radical worth and value of Jesus, which in turn changes how we react to all things in our life. To understand his preciousness, his worth, to know him Knowing Jesus' true worth enables us to find true joy and react to the things around us rightly, in the losses, in our successes, in our sufferings, in sacrificial love for others, which provokes true, lasting joy in God's people. 
And so let's read our text, and we will pray, and we'll dive in. We're going to be reading verses 1 through 11 this morning. Finally, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me, and it is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for the confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. And we, we come to a, quite, a, quite an amazing passage of Paul communicating the, the unsurpassing worth of Jesus Christ, the, the radical value that he encountered in Jesus. And Lord, I, I pray by your spirit, you would help us in some similar way leave this morning with, with our affections lifted towards you, Jesus, that the value and the worth of you, Jesus, would, would, be, would be increased. We ask for your help to do that. Help us to see, help us to know, help us to believe today by your spirit. Amen. Amen. Well, some initial thoughts before we kind of unpack. You hear this main command in our text. Rejoice. This isn't a new word. We have been hearing this word. He says, finally, my brothers, the word brothers there is brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. Now that word "finally" kind of seems a bit, a bit odd. I mean, is this? I mean, if you're looking at your Bible, there's like there's like two chapters here. What do you mean, "finally"? Is it? It's not the end. Uh, there's a lot more that God is, has to say to us. So it's not the end of the letter. The Greek word actually "finally" could be better translated "so then" or "further." So there's not a finality to what he's saying. He's he's continuing a connection of what he's been addressing, and he's returning to their circumstances. And he says, "So then." So then, what we've been working through, so then, rejoice in the Lord, or find joy 
in God. Find joy in Jesus, in Him. So far, Paul has prayed with joy. He's rejoiced over Christ being proclaimed in pretense or truth. He's rejoicing in their prayers for him, his imprisonment that's advancing the gospel. He's rejoicing that he's being poured out as a sacrificial, um, his life sacrificially for their joy. He's eager for their rejoicing and gladness that Epaphroditus will return to them and serve them and be with them again. And he wants their joy and gladness to be there as well. He is laboring, he says earlier in the book, for their progress and joy in the gospel, in Jesus. Their progress and their joy is imperative to him. And and he wants the Philippians to stand resolved side by side in the gospel, in unity for the gospel, with their hearts full of Christ. And he knows when that happens, they're going to be able to say, I rejoice, I rejoice in the Lord in all circumstances. It's what, he's, it's what he's writing to them about, been writing to them about, and it's what he's about to communicate to them. And this theme that he's been echoing through his letter, he wants, them, he wants them to stay focused on Jesus and their progress and joy in Jesus. And he's going to communicate some things to help keep them steady in that direction. And then we see what seems to be a strange shift. Paul begins with this, this warning, the, the tone kind of shifts. I mean, it's been rejoicing and happy and his affection. He just got done talking about Timothy and Epaphroditus and how much he loves them and how much they love them. And then it's like this, this tone, this, this, this tone of serious rebuke and, and concern that comes in. But it's not an underreaction. It's not an overreaction. It, it is a warning because he knows that there's an enemy of their joy. And he does not want them to lose their joy in Christ. So he starts by saying, to write the same things to you is no trouble to me, and it is safe for you. He wants them to be safe. He says, speaking again on this issue, because it's likely he either taught them when he was there and warned them about these teachings um, or communicated in another way, but he's wanting them to be reminded of this enemy of their joy, an enemy of the gospel. So it's important that he doesn't mind readdressing this issue because it's for their protection, for their gospel rejoicing. And so we're going to be looking at that in one part, and then also a second part to Paul's kind of example of his love. So Paul's going to show us the history, the the empty loss of this prior confidence of self, which in turn is going to expose the warning uh, a warning to help them discern false teachers around them, enemies of their joy in Jesus, and he's going to point to his deep treasuring of Jesus to in turn help the Philippians find a treasure in Jesus so that they can suffer and live well following Jesus. So, first part, the serious danger of trust in self. So, we see sort of this sub-exhortation under verse 1. After he tells them to rejoice, there's this negative warning, look out, look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Now, I'm a dog guy. I love dogs. If I visit your house and you had your dog, I'd be loving that dog. We, we have a dog. I think they're one of the most amazing animals in the world. Um, their companionship, their fun, their love. Here, Paul is not saying anything that has anything to do with good or affection. This is this is no puppy love. This Jews would reference those outside of the covenant, 
the unclean as dogs. This is a degrading, low-life reference. Dogs that would eat junk and dead things. They were unclean. And Paul uses it to describe this, this false brand of Christianity, a group that thinks that they're pure when actually they're the opposite. They, they are dogs. And Paul is likely referencing a group called the Judaizers. Paul deals with them in other letters of his, like in Galatians. And this group's teaching were that Christians, or those who in this case are Gentiles, if they, they have to adhere not just simply to trusting in Jesus, but to Old Testament laws, specifically circumcision, in order to be saved. So they were saying, yes, you need Jesus, but you also need to keep Old Testament law and circumcision to be saved. This was a serious rejection and contamination and distortion of the gospel. Paul does not hold back in other letters, like in Galatians 1. He says, even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed, damned, if they preach another gospel. He asked them how, how what God has begun in the Spirit, he asked this question to the Galatians, that, that how that would they complete that work that God started by the Spirit with their flesh, with their works, things that they could do. It can't be done. God began this in the Spirit. God will complete this in the Spirit. And so he says, look out for these people in this teaching. They're not just just erring a little bit. They are evildoers, he says. They think they're more spiritually pure by their circumcision, but in reality, it's iniquity and it's destruction. Beware of them. Beware of those who mutilate the flesh. It's literally beware, beware the mutilation. Those who cut into pieces, they're destroying. So this teaching is saying to put confidence and insurance in the flesh or our works that we can add to the gospel. It's a Jesus plus gospel. And the proper reaction is to avoid this. It's a threat to the gospel. It is a threat to your rejoicing in the Lord, Paul is saying. It is a threat to true joy. There was a time in my, my younger Christian walk that lasted for many, many years where I grew up in a Jesus plus teaching in my life. Can't listen to this kind of music or you are in sin. It was rules and regulations that were somehow I had to accomplish something in my flesh for God to be pleased with me or me to be accepted. This led to lack of assurance and lack of joy throughout my Christian walk. Legalism and pride and self-righteousness, the amount, the amount of pride that that led to, I just looked down on all the people who weren't doing what I was doing to be acceptable in my mind to God. It led me to be get baptized multiple times because I, I didn't know if I was saved or not. I had to keep, re-keep getting baptized. This sort of theology led my eyes onto myself, not onto the precious full work of Jesus in the gospel for me, but on Nate. It was self-oriented, and it was against the freeing power of the gospel. But I thank God that I got to experience the joy and tasted of the freeing power of the good of the gospel. And to illustrate how wrong this belief system is, Paul takes a moment to, to share his story in sort of a mocking way, to draw attention to his resume, if that really counted for anything, saying, if if that's the game, if, our, if it is confidence in our flesh 
in us, self-works, then I've got reason for confidence. He said, you want to you know my resume? I'll tell you about my resume. It's better than yours, actually. It's, I beat all of you out. You want to see my certificates? You want to see my award wall? You want to see all the trophies in my, my case? I will hold them up for you. And he lays out this biographical sketch of his background. His pedigree, eighth day, circumcised. Sign of the covenant. One of, the, one of God's chosen people. All the access to all the blessings of the covenant. All of his rights. His national connection, tribe of Benjamin. Though maybe not the royal tribe of Judah, which would be pretty awesome, but he was loyal to David and his successors. He is... He's got pedigree here. His parents, Hebrews of Hebrews. He was not converted as a Gentile. No, man, he was thorough, thoroughly pure in his blood. Hebrew of Hebrews. Personally, he, he gave strictness to the law. The smallest and the biggest regulations of the law, he kept them. So much of the case where he became a Pharisee. He was at the top of the, the heap. So zealous that he just didn't just teach what was right. He opposed all those who would come against the law. He hated the church. He persecuted it with zeal. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. His record was spotless. This doesn't mean that he thought himself sinless or having some saving righteousness, but according to the requirements of the Old Testament law, he kept them to the T. He was the man. He was the man. But in contrast, Paul says, it doesn't count for anything. He's saying, brothers and sisters, my, my fellow Christians, that is not us. This is not us. This is not where we've put our confidence. This is not what matters. Look at verse 3. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Note the we. So me, Paul's saying me, the Jew, and you, Gentiles, he pulls us together, we together. We together are this radical new community, this new identity in Jesus by the gospel through the Spirit. We are the circumcision, meaning under this new covenant, it is in Jesus' life and death and resurrection through the Spirit that makes us the people of God, right with Him and in, in, his, uh, in his covenant. Paul points to this, this in Romans chapter 2. This circumcision, he says, now that is, that is of the heart, for no one is a Jew who is merely outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. Not by laws, but something that happens inwardly in us by the Spirit. And the Spirit now does this saving work. It separates us from the fleshly sinful enslavement in our life and frees us and identifies us now as the people of God by the Spirit. And this is why there could be no boast in us. There's no boasting. I, I, can't, I can't take any credit. This is Paul's point. It is all about what Jesus has accomplished. Our glory, our boast, he says, is in Jesus Christ. Not in the confidence of what we can do or what we can achieve. It has begun in God. It comes to us by God. It is received by faith as a gift from God. It is all God. Therefore, no confidence in our flesh. Nothing. I bring nothing to the table except looking to what Jesus has done. Their identity is Jesus now. Their boast is Jesus now. Their joy then can be rooted in all that Jesus has done on their behalf, not the ebbs and flows of them keeping something or not, but what Jesus has done for them. 
being found in Jesus alone. And this, this leads to rejoicing. Rejoice in the Lord, church. Why? Because, you know, our resumes are useless in the end. We're looking to Jesus. We're looking to Jesus. Rejoice in the Lord. And look out, look out, don't drift. Don't look beyond our, to your confidence, but only towards what God has done. What are you aware of this morning as you sit here, as maybe you were worshiping? Are you more aware of what you, you didn't do for Jesus this week, your resume? Or are you more aware of Jesus' resume on your behalf that has been given to you? Are you tempted to look to your resume? Jesus plus something. What, what's your confidence? Young people in here, it, is it your family upbringing? Is it just maybe you haven't done a certain sin? Or because you know certain things about the Bible that they can't be any of those things? It must be that we look to Jesus Christ alone. We can turn our heart away from what we did or didn't do this week and place our confidence on what Jesus has accomplished. We are people of the Spirit with no confidence in the flesh or in ourself. We look away from us and we look on to Christ. So Paul now, sort of in contrast to what will not make us right before God, he, he now directs our attention to what will preserve true, lasting, rejoicing, the worth, knowing Jesus, knowing the worth of Jesus. So we know the serious joy of knowing Jesus and his worth. So after Paul's bio, he then says, he says, but. So all of that, all that stuff, all those resumes, but. And that was then, and this is now. And then he takes us through all of these, all of these gains that he had communicated or that he has experienced. Imagine kind of like a ledger that an accountant would have. He, he puts them in columns He's putting down his gains in one column that were once wins and gains and confidences in his flesh, and the other is Christ. Because since Paul is now encountered and has Jesus, he sees so clearly. He sees what his old life was, and now he sees his new life, and, and it's transformational. You kind of see it in this table, right? The old life, all his gains, he, he now, he's counted as loss for Christ, Counted all those things for the surpassing worth of knowing the value of Christ. He, all the things that he would suffer, all the things that he would encounter are all really losses for the sake of knowing Christ. All those things can be counted as rubbish or dung that he may gain Christ. All the gains, losses compared to Christ. All that stuff, all the achievements, all the stuff he did, all the things he had, all the things he would suffer, all in comparison are, are rubbish. This word can mean like dung, excrement. I mean, it's, it's gross. Excrement is gross. It's gross to humans. It is, it is a, it is a re, re, repulsive thing. And all of those things, all those medals, all that honor, all the achievements are just nothing in comparison to the worth of Jesus Paul knows all those gains that he thought gave him even righteousness could never do enough. He needed a perfect righteousness. He knew it would never measure up. A perfect record on, on his part. There needed to be a, a, a record, a bank account, a ledger that had limitless and full, deeper, and never-ending power 
And that can only be found not in the confidence of his flesh, but something given to him, accounted to him because of what Jesus has done by faith. Verse 9, and to be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. See, Paul does not want to be found on his own in all what he thought were gains. He wanted to be found in Jesus. He's still running the race at this point. We'll see later in our chapter, he's talking about this, this straining, this running ahead that he knows he has not yet achieved. He's still running, but he knows it's a promise for him. But he wants to be found not holding up his own res- record or resume because he knew it would be, would be enough, but he wanted to be found in Jesus for righteousness and a righteousness that comes from God, which is Christ's righteousness. Romans 3 tells us that there is none righteous, not one. No one, no one has kept this. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 3 says that it's like our mouths are stopped. Everyone must put their hand over their mouth and say, I got no, no reply. Jew, Gentile, upbringing in church or not, I don't care who you are, nothing. We are guilty. Mouths are stopped and yet the promise is in Jesus. What is the promise? Is that we can be justified, Romans 3, 24 and 25, made righteous by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus to be received by faith. By faith. And as we come to know and realize more deeply what Jesus has done and who he is, it's it, it, Paul, Paul, for him, it's, it's all he wants. He's come to know his righteousness is there in Jesus. He's come to know the satisfaction and worth of Jesus, and that's what he wants. It's his prize. It's his treasure where his true identity is found, not in a job, not in a marriage, not in a relationship, not in possessions, not in rule-keeping, not in things, but his, his identity is being connected to Jesus. The value of his life, the value of the world and things that he will encounter, all reference to the value of knowing Jesus First and foremost, Paul came to know this supreme worth of Jesus by God's grace. How did he come to know this? He knew it was grace. Just notice that as much as his exa- he's communicating this example, it, there isn't a command there. He's holding out this reality of what he's received because it's been grace at work in his life. Remember, Paul didn't see this on his own. He didn't figure it out on his own. He hated Jesus. He was an enemy of the church. But he experiences on this road to Damascus and his dead heart was awakened and his eyes saw the preciousness of Christ. And he came to know the worth of Jesus and his treasure. And that that set him on a trajectory, the deeper knowing that, deeper experiencing of that, and then allowing all that he would do and all that he'd experience would be on behalf of Jesus When we realize the treasure, it it does something to us. It's what Jesus taught in Matthew 13. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field which a man found and hid and from joy over it he goes and sells all he has and buys the field. All of Paul's assets, all of his gains, all of his accomplishments he saw really as losses and empty and debt. They, they actually were preventing him from seeing and knowing and treasuring Jesus. 
But once he did, he realized he could forsake all. And all those things that would encounter, all the losses, all the pains, and all the sufferings, he could embrace because he had Christ. We can't and we don't manufacture and create the worth of Christ. We come into a deeper and deeper understanding and knowing of the worth and value of Christ. All that is increased in him, everything else is decreased in its value, and therefore suffering can be embraced because Jesus is worth it. All that Paul's been communicating about selfless love and self-denying care and humility, we can serve others sacrificially because we know Jesus is worth it. All could be taken away, all could be lost, and we could say, but I have Christ. Christ at the center. And it's amazing in this passage is embedded all, all these realities of salvation that comes to us in Christ's life, his death, his resurrection through faith. We see the past, we see the current, and we see the future salvation in our text. We've been talking about some of these themes like justification, where we are made righteous by faith in Jesus. Our sins accounted to Jesus, his perfect life is accounted as our own, and we are justified. We see that here in our text, that we see sanctification, right? The progressive work where we become more and more like Jesus. Note what Paul says here. His goal, what he wants, he, his goal is to know Jesus and the power of his resurrection and share, we've heard this word before, this word koinonia. He wants a fellowship with Jesus in his sufferings. What happens in that? He's becoming like him in his death. So like Paul, the resurrection power is, has come in Jesus' life-giving power in us. We can live in him, obey him, follow Jesus, and as we do, we share likewise in his victory, but also we, sh- we share in his sufferings. Jesus told us that that would, that would be our path as disciples. We would suffer for his sake. And in his suffering and his living with him, Paul knows this is his, him being conformed to Jesus. He's becoming like Jesus. There's fellowship with the Savior in that place of suffering. That can only be known in that place of suffering. But there's an end, a, a place that this is directing to. Paul says this in verse 11. He wants to become like Jesus. He wants, to, he want, he wants Christ to be his valuable, the, the most valuable thing in his life so that by all means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Whatever needs to be done, let Christ be my ultimate treasure so that this could be the place that I end. Because he, he knows that end is a place where he will ultimately be with Jesus. Our union with Jesus, his life becomes our life. In our union with Jesus, his death becomes our death. In our union with Jesus, his resurrection becomes our resurrection. The Spirit is given to, to guarantee this inheritance for us, this sort of down payment to come. Paul speaks of this in Romans 8. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Jesus is that valuable treasure that we are united with 
who promises to get us through till the end. Jesus in the beginning, Jesus in the end. It is, it is us stepping into what is really our true citizenship and our home, and that is to be with Christ. So all the things that would still be in part to know and to love and to treasure Jesus will be seen and fully realized. Treasuring Jesus, knowing Jesus, sets us free, church. Paul has spoken of his desire to be poured out in joy for them. How is that possible? It's because he treasured Jesus. He wanted to suffer for their sake. How? Because he treasured Jesus. Timothy was an example. And Paphroditus, too, that we just saw, almost dying for the gospel's sake. How were they able to do that? Because they were caught up in treasuring Jesus above all else. So all the gains and all the losses compared to him enabled him to suffer and to serve and to love with joy. If I treasure self, I can't serve others because I'm only thinking of me. If I treasure things, I can't let go of them and give them to other people's, for other people's needs because I want to hold on. If I treasure recognition or my name, I will do whatever I can to get, keep my name safe and thought well of in the eyes of others, or I will refuse to associate with others who are lowly in my eyes because I'm protecting myself. If I treasure my comforts, I will work to preserve that rather than embrace discomforts or loss or suffering for Jesus' sake. But when we come to know by God's grace, by the Spirit, Jesus' worth, when His love becomes more and more poured out in our hearts, in our trust of Him, and His his love fills our hearts more and more, it unlocks us, it frees us to live for Him to experience losses for him, to love others well for him. It actually advances us to even knowing him more. It's, so if our health is stripped away, we have Jesus. If our money is stripped away, we have Jesus. If we're persecuted for his sake, we have Jesus. How about your heart today? Is, is there something you are clinging to, treasuring most, thinking that thing will make you ultimately happy. That stuff, that idol, that, maybe that gain that you're just clinging to. That gain won't satisfy. Matthew 16 says, For what will profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Do I find my joy in blank? Just fill in that blank. And we can ask that question of all of our hearts. Where, where does Jesus want to increase our joy and satisfaction in that blank? Maybe for you today, there is something else in Christ is completely out of the picture for you. I want to encourage you to trust in Jesus today. There's nothing on this earth that will, no gain on this earth that will truly satisfy you except Jesus Christ. It's interesting that Paul wrote to them again on this subject. Remember, he didn't overreact or underreact. He was purposeful in his reaction. He wanted their discernment. Friends, he loves them. Let your discernment be up for anything that's going to sneak in and, and be a Jesus plus or to diminish your rejoicing in the Lord. He wants them to be the happiest people in church in the Lord. 
God wants us to be a happy people rejoicing in the Lord. But as believers, as we grow in maturity, we should grow in more and more discernment about those things that rob or that we're trying to fill in the gaps with. But we never grow out of needing to do that discerning work. We never grow out of having to return to again and again and saying, is there something else I'm smuggling into the gospel? Self-sufficiency, pride, legalism. We don't drift into that better place. We, re- we drift the other way. We, we drift towards legalism or license, right? Disobeying and not moving towards obedience or our legalistic works that we think somehow we're going to be pleasing the Lord. So we need to return to the gospel again and again to motivate us, to free us from our works that we somehow try to think we can present, present before the Lord or the, things that don't, the gospel that doesn't motivate us rightly towards obedience. Martin Luther knew this centuries ago, and he wrote this actually in a commentary on Galatians, which is reflective of some of the point we're looking at in Philippians 3. He says this, Here I must take counsel of the gospel. I must hearken to the gospel, which teacheth me not what I ought to do, for that is the proper office of the law, but what Jesus Christ, the Son of God, hath done for me. To wit, that he suffered and died to deliver me from sin and death. The gospel willeth me to receive this and to believe it. And this is the truth of the gospel. It is also the principal article of all Christian doctrine, meaning it's the main thing wherein the knowledge of all godliness consisteth. Most necessary it is, therefore, that we should know this article well, the gospel well, teach it unto others, and beat it into their heads continually. Luther was not overreacting here. He knew how important this was for his own heart. He knew how important it was for the churches he served. The law wasn't enough. It will not motivate us. It will not bring enough. It will not do enough. My willpower, your willpower, our resumes are powerless resumes. Paul knew this. Luther knew this. The Philippians are knew this. We need to know that. It can't save. And it won't motivate happy obedience to Jesus Christ. It will not motivate us or keep us when there are losses and losses and losses. It will be coming again and again and again to the good news of Jesus Christ, the gospel of Jesus, the mercy and grace in which he did not withhold himself. He did not withhold himself, but he gave himself freely all of his life, all of his death, all of his resurrection, all of his love to us. And we didn't merit it. I read Indeed, you know, the work connection service online, 245 million resumes are on there right now. A bunch of people saying, me, I'm enough. I'm better than you. I I, I mean, if you're on Indeed, I'm I'm not slamming you or anything. (laughs) But in all 245 million people, that's a lot of competition to try to get in somewhere. And, And we have a Savior who stepped in and didn't require us to raise our hand and say, I need a resume from you. He, he steps in and says, all of mine, all of my life, all of my obedience, all that I've done is yours. By faith, come. Know my love. Know my love. Christian joy and assurance is rooted in trusting and knowing Jesus, not in ourself. 
And joy and assurance grows as we treasure Him more and know Him more, which enables us to suffer, enables us to experience loss, enables us to become more like Him, all with hope that we're going to be with Him. This is what Jesus prayed in John 17, and this is eternal life, that they know you. The only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. This was his prayer for his disciples, their eternal joy to know him, to know God. Our invitation to joy and happiness in the Lord is this pathway of being more and more satisfied in Jesus, knowing him, knowing him, our hearts filled with his lovely worth. So we can say in anything, rejoice in the Lord. Let's ask the Lord to help us to do that. Jesus, thank you for not withholding yourself from us, but freely giving yourself to us. And Lord, we are here, uh, no matter our maturity, our tenure as Christians, we, we do need the gospel to sometimes just get beat into our heads again to be reminded it's not my resume. It is what Jesus has done on our behalf, and we freely receive that by faith. And you do that because you want our hearts to be satisfied in you. You want our hearts to find joy in all circumstances, not because we're happy we're going through those things, but because we know we have a Savior who loves us and who is with us and who's working all things for the good of those who are called according to your purpose. And that one day we're going to be fully satisfied in that love. No barriers, no boundaries, no glass dimly, uh, no borders, but full, fully caught up in the satisfying joy and love of our Savior. And so let us taste of that. Let us, let us have more of that by your Spirit. Lift our hearts, Lord, more and more into this example we see in Paul to know you, Jesus, the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus. We love you, Lord. Amen.